Hello and welcome to another episode of the Simply Medics podcast. This is season two, episode two, and we'd like to thank you for joining us. So this week, we're going to be talking about something that we're both quite passionate about, and that's the disparities in maternal outcomes within the UK and in America. Um, This is something that was in a lot of discussion last year following Black Lives Matter and a report released by the Department of Health and as well as the um, annual Embrace report. But before we jump into that, we introduced something new in our last episode called a pod case. So for those of you who are listening, we're just going to recap the case and give you the answers. So over to Emanuela. So last week's podcast was an obs and gyne history and I asked three questions. I'm just going to recap that history again and ask those questions and then answer those questions at the end. So we had a 37-year-old female who presented to the early pregnancy assessment unit with some PV bleeding, which is vaginal bleeding and suprapubic abdominal pain. Her history of presenting complaints, she was a gravida 4, para 1 plus 2, gestations of 10 weeks and 3 days. She woke up with what felt like crampy abdominal pain, Had went to use the toilet and noticed some blood in the toilet bowl. Review of systems was normal. She had no urinary symptoms, no chest pain or breathlessness. Her obstetric history, so she had a four-year-old daughter who was delivered at 38 weeks, two days, by vaginal delivery, birth weight 3.2 kilograms. There were no complications. Mom and baby were both healthy and there were no admissions to NICU. She had had two previous spontaneous miscarriages, one two, six years ago and the other two two years ago at six weeks and nine weeks respectively. Her gynae history, she was up to date with her cervical smears and had no previous STIs. She was a type 2 diabetic controlled on diet. She had no previous surgeries, no known drug allergies, nil drug history. Her family, hist- her family history, her sister had recurrent miscarriages, the cause wasn't found. Social history, she was a non-smoker hardly drank any alcohol and worked as a teacher in a sixth form. She lived with her husband and daughter. In terms of her ideas, concerns and expectations, she was concerned that she had another miscarriage as it felt the same to the previous two. So we asked you three questions and those questions were, which examinations are important to carry out for this patient? Which investigations would you like to carry out? And on examination, this patient had an open internal cervical os. What type of miscarriage has this lady had? So for the answer to the first question, which examinations are important to carry out for this patient? The following, examin- the following examinations are what you would normally do for any anyone presenting with what you might think is a miscarriage. So that would be an abdominal examination, a bimanual examination and a speculum examination. So it's important to do a speculum examination to assess the diameter of the cervical os and observe for any products of conception in the cervical canal or any local areas of bleeding. A bimanual examination will allow you to assess assess any uterine tenderness and any agnesal masses or collections if you're thinking that this patient might have had an ectopic pregnancy. In regards to investigations that you'd like to carry out, which was question number two, the answer would be an ultrasound, serum, beta-HCGs, full blood count, blood group and rhesus status. So in order to get a definitive diagnosis for a miscarriage, a Transvaginal ultrasound is what would be required. Now, this is the most important investigation as it helps you to exclude uh, to exclude a miscarriage if fetal cardiac activity is found. 
However, if you cannot perform an ultrasound immediately, you can do beta serum beta HCGs. Now, what this does is doesn't show you whether a pregnancy is viable or non-viable, but it's useful in assessing the possibility of an ectopic pregnancy. Now, the other investigation is a full blood count. So the full blood count will be necessary if you're thinking that this patient might be hemodynamically unstable, so they're losing a lot of blood, and whether or not you may think they might require a tra- blood transfusion. Blood group, so blood group and save will be, again, important if this patient is hemodynamically unstable and you're, again, considering transfusing them. Rhesus status is important because in women who are rhesus negative and are at 12, above 12 weeks of gestation, they will require anti-deprophylaxis. Now, the final question was, on examination, the patient had an open internal cervical os. What type of miscarriage has this lady had? The answer to this question is inevitable, and this is because her internal cervical os is open, which means that she's, unfortunately, a miscarriage is very likely to happen. So those are all the que- all the answers to the questions that we asked last week. Please keep an eye out for any more content that we're going to have in regards to not just these podcasts, but podcasts that we're going to do at the end of each episode. So, um, sorry to be annoying, but I've got a question about the podcast. Go for it. First of all, I'm really happy. I got most of the answers right. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to ask, all right, given that this woman was 10 weeks, three days gestation, would she need a rhesus? Uh-huh. Um, her rhesus status um, determined or or would you so, would that just be solely at 12 weeks so she probably wouldn't need her rhesus status determined because she's not at 12 weeks but it's just one of those things to consider if it's mm. a miscarriage but she probably okay. would already know her rhesus status because she's had previous pregnancies oh yeah that's true yeah that's true and my final question was um, I thought it was inevitable, but I was thoughting about, I was thoughting, <laughs> wow, I was thinking about incomplete as well. So I was just wondering, I, I always personally struggle to tell the difference between the two. So what's uh-huh. the difference between the two? So the, I think both in, in, inevitable and in, incomplete, both internal cervical also be open because obviously in incomplete, you're still passing products of conception. But in this case, um, your it could have been that she had an incomplete miscarriage but because she just had some bleeding in the morning and she hadn't plast any clots we're not really sure whether or not she's started to miscarry does that make sense mm, okay so bleeding but without clots yeah because in incomplete you're, you've passed some products of conception but you're not fully passed everything uh okay i need to update my notes then <laughs> cool thank you welcome I hope you got all those questions correctly. Um, if you didn't, at least you learned something and you can go read up on miscarriages. So like Mo, you introduced this particular episode, we're going to talk about pregnancy and especially disparity within maternal outcomes for black women. Um, and that's the reason why we did this podcast so that, you know, we can get everyone gearing in the mind of obstetrics, get everyone gearing in the mind of sort of maternal health. So for this particular episode, we're going to delve in a bit deeper on maternal outcomes for black women I don't know if any of you guys remember but in March last year when the whole George Floyd um when you know the whole George Floyd Black Lives Matter um thing happened there was a lot of talk about you know black people's health and the different disparities within black people and you know um 
white people and black people and, and what we class as BAME, so the black Asian and minority ethnics. And there's a lot of discussions that came up. And one thing that, you know, I saw when I went protesting was signs of saying black women are five times more likely to die in, in labor or to die during pregnancy. And this fact wasn't plucked out of thin air. Actually, this is a, it's a well-known fact that you can find if you, within the Obzengayani circle or within the maternal health circle. Um, this fact comes from the Embrace Report. So this Embrace Report is a report that is written every year by the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And it has sort of the different um, health outcomes and maternal outcomes for women within the United Kingdom. So it looks at sort of what factors that causes maternal mortality and maternal morbidity, whether it's people with existing conditions, it looks at, you know, social um socioeconomic disparities and all those variant things. So we thought, you know, let's let's have a, d- a deeper look into this because this is obviously something that we're really passionate about. We follow a lot of different influencers, celebrities who are from, you know, similar backgrounds as us, both being black women. And we've heard their stories. You know, Serena Williams speaks very boldly about when she was pregnant with her daughter and the sort of health complications she faced which she had a pulmonary embolism and she has suffered from pulmonary embolisms and how many times she had to speak out before she someone realized that actually she was suffering and that she was going through pain and that she was breathless so we're going to talk a bit more about this issue because it's something that impacts a lot of black women within the united kingdom but also impacts black women within the u.s as well so what do you think are the factors which contributes to the disparities? Why are black women five times more likely to die in pregnancy compared to white women? I think with everything in health, there is no one answer. So, you know, like at medical school, they always talk about the biopsychosocial model and how there is multiple prongs to every single thing. And I think some of the main, one of the main factors is, Obviously, racism, you know, there's this whole implicit bias that there is in healthcare. There's this whole systematic racism that is within healthcare, especially within the Western Western world. Mm. And sometimes that means that women of colour may struggle to access healthcare or um, clinicians may not necessarily understand their healthcare needs. Um, Mm. Especially if if they're not from the same background as them. So they may not know what what they're communing or they may have a a, um, a prejudged idea that actually they are stronger you know there's this whole misconception that black people in general are stronger and able to handle pain better and as a result a lot of black people have not adequately had their pain controlled when they go to hospital and them not getting their morphine or getting cold you know whatever on time because they're like oh they're fine they're fine that is just drug-seeking behavior oh no they're not in that much pain but in fact they're in a lot of pain yeah. I think that's like one factor that, you know, people not truly understanding the healthcare needs or having misconceptions about black women or black people in general, which is quite dangerous. Okay, what about you? What other factors do you think influence? Um, just before I actually go into that, when you mentioned about the pain, so many stories came to mind. Like you see so many things on social media and, you know, it's you don't believe everything you read on social media, but if a lot of black women are sharing their experiences of pain or not having their needs attended to properly during pregnancy, then it's not just, you know, a one-off event. This is a regular pattern. So I don't even know which one to share with you. Um, I've got one in America. Should I go with that one? Or one that's here in the UK? 
Mm, okay, let's go for the UK one since, you know, it's closer to home. Yeah, for, for all of you people, well, okay, I'm not saying this just, for people who believe that racism is an American problem, it's very here in the UK, in London, the beacon of multicultural being or whatever. So there's this influencer, Grace Agilore. Uh, you know, you've heard of Grace, right? Yeah, I've heard of Grace. Yeah, so she came out recently about a few months ago and shared her story of childbirth on her YouTube channel. Um, I'd recommend you check it out. And she was basically, um, she was induced, I believe. Um, And when it got down to the pain, I think it was too much for her. So she requested an epidural. And what happened is um, they didn't actually put the epidural in properly. And I think it fell out. And she was complaining that she's she's in pain, she's in pain, she's in pain. And we both know like the first stage of labor and the second stage of labor, they are very long, especially when you have your first child. So all this time she's complaining that she's in pain, but nobody's really assessing yeah. her. You know, if someone's in pain, they'll do that kind of cold spray to check that the epidural's yeah. working. None of that was done. By the time um a lot of a long a long period of time had passed and then someone came into the room and eventually done that cold spray thing and the, and then they moved her and they found that the epidural was not where it was supposed to be which explained why she was in a lot of pain had she been taken seriously in the beginning kind of assessed evaluated the epidural site checks that spray thing to check yeah. it's working they would have found the problem much sooner but by the time they discovered that she'd already progressed to a stage where it was too late to put the epidural. So throughout her whole pregnancy, you know, at least a portion of it should have been pain-free, but the whole thing was just painful. And I heard that story and I was just like, that is not on, like, that is really, really poor. Yeah. Yeah. Just imagine going through that. And obviously everybody knows childbirth is not, you know, it's not a pain-free experience, but as healthcare professionals, we're there to kind of help women through their pain, manage it adequately. But, um, you know, this this isn't what she said, but I've had other stories of where when women are in pain, um, you know, their relatives have heard nursing, nursing staff or midwives or doctors say amongst themselves, oh, she's just being hysterical. Oh, it's not that painful. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. pain is actually perception. Like, uh-huh. When you look at it neurologically, I could walk on something, stab my foot, but the, if I don't know that I've stabbed my foot, I won't determine that pain. But when I perceive that I've stepped on yeah. something, that's when um, I perceive the pain. So pain to me will be p- different from pain to you. So for you, someone yes. else to judge the level of someone's pain and be like, oh no, it's not that deep. I think that's something that we need to, you know, tackle. Um, but yeah, that and was just like the, a story to do with pain. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's fine. I think, I think the, also the whole thing about pain that you were talking about is we have to learn to trust our patients. Not every not every patient that says they're in pain is actually, you know, trying to seek medication or is doing it for other intentions. A lot of the time they're in general pain. So especially in labor, if someone's complaining of pain, some, something that should be taken serious by clinicians and should try and alleviate that pain. Because then, yeah. unfortunately, you're having women who are going through, you know, um, what's meant to be a beautiful experience, ha- being se- semi-traumatized by it, and having really, um, really bad birth stories. And mm-hmm. it's, it's not, unfortunately, it shouldn't be like that, especially if we're living in a country such as, you know, England. A lot of it's historically, though. Like if you look at the history of medicine, yeah. 
So I don't know if I've sent shots for this guy before. I mean, he can't reach me. Uh, Mariam Jason, <laughs> the 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 father yes. of modern day gynecology. Yeah. Um, okay, like okay, we get it. There's been advances in um, obstetrics and gynecology because of him, but let's not mm. turn our eyes away from the evil which was inflicted upon mm. black women slaves. And I think that yeah. is one of the reasons why that perception of black pain and the pain, um, our pain threshold is just so unrealistic because what this doctor did is he, if for those who, for those who have been for a cervical smear, there's a, um, instrument called a speculum, which helps us to see what the cervix is like. So that's one of the things he actually created and developed. And he also, um, created a, a surgery for, I can't remember the name or type of fistula. I think it was a, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to cap. I can't remember the name, but he done all his experimentations without using anesthetic. So imagine somebody sewing a needle through your part, private parts without any pain relief because he owned slaves. So he could, they were his property. He could do all of, all of his experiments on them. And he didn't give an ounce of anesthesia because there was a belief that we're subhuman. We can't tolerate pain. And to the extent that it was actually, I saw it in, um, somebody posted this on Twitter many years ago, a nursing book, which had so many stereotypes. And one of it was black people feel less pain. Less pain. So yeah, I saw that as well. It's kind of indoctrinated in medical education. I mean, I've not seen anything like yeah. that in my training, thank God. No, but, I haven't either. But anecdotally, like, mm. um, yeah, when you are maybe training you learn from other people you know the the hidden curriculum and there'll be comments like oh um <laughs> so I heard from someone um that someone said black black people have thicker skin so when you do cannulation Whoa. you've got to use the bigger needles oh I heard that as well yeah so imagine you're a naive medical student, nursing student or whatever, and your senior is telling you all the tips and tricks. And it's like, oh, you know, this this race of people use this for them because that works better. It's like, OK, um, sir, can you produce your paper for your anecdotal evidence? If not, can you, Listen. you know, honestly, S- take it so for several things, seats, honestly. So things like that, the hidden curriculum, I think that's what's perpetrate. Wow. Let me not use fancy English. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what's continuing that misconception yeah. that we have a high pain yeah. threshold. But I also yeah. think in terms of sort of the social aspects, so you know how we've talked about the whole ideology that black people don't feel pain or they have a higher pain threshold. There's other aspects that I think us as black people have bought into is that that whole strong black stereotype that oh because I am mm-hmm. black I am strong because I am black I don't need to ask for help because I am black oh I'm fine especially the, those from the African um, you know people who are from the African diaspora we ha- we've always had this thing that oh, I'm strong I'm strong I don't need any help I'm, I'll be okay but actually it's always good to ask for help and not leave it too late honestly I, for help earlier on but to leave it too late definitely um it starts from when you're young like it's it's just mm. as simple as like doing hair you know mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember sorry mom I remember doing my hair when I was younger <laughs> and I'd be wincing in pain and mom would be like oh you know beauty is pain like just tolerate the pain mm. um mm. and then there's so many w- women or girls that I knew when I was in school had 
black black girls by the way painful periods like days off school yeah. writhing and twisting in pain but it was just like oh you know my mum had that my grandparents had that my grandma had that so it's just normal it's just expected but it's like since so you could have like endometriosis fibroids go to the doctor get it checked out even if nothing is there you can get some pain relief like proper um tryptamic acid or whatever you need to help with the pain don't just tolerate it I agree I definitely agree it, like you said it's sort of things that are passed down from generation to generation where you're told oh you'll be okay you know we, we can tolerate we can tolerate it but we can tolerate it, we can tolerate your attitude, unfortunately, has resulted in people dying or coming to harm and not having certain medical things picked up early on. So I think in addition to like what we talked about, the cultural aspects, so, you know, the beliefs that people have, beliefs that healthcare um, pr- practitioners have, as well as beliefs that we as black people may believe that, you know, that we we can handle pain, we're strong, we're this, we're that. There's also another aspect, which is actually there's certain health conditions that black people are more predisposed to have. So high mm-hmm. blood pressure is one of those things. Um, and it's a mixture of stuff like, you know, our actual diet c- contributes a lot to us having high blood pressure. Um, most of the, most black people who live in this country tend to have quite stressful jobs. Um, they, they may live in urban areas. They have a lot, of, a lot going on. They don't just have their lives and their kids to take care of. They've also got family back home. They've got all these various, various factors making their life very stressful. Um, so again, if you're, um, that can result in high blood pressure, result in high cholesterol, all these things that can lead to complications in pregnancy. So we also need to look at ways as a, as a society, how we can help reduce these risk factors, these medical risk factors, not just thinking about, you know, the healthcare is racist, but also we had to take care of ourselves and there needs to be policy put in place to allow people to understand that actually if you don't live your life in a healthy manner you're at a risk of having complications in your pregnancy definitely and um again during that whole the black lives matter kind of conversation last year um so there's this yeah. doctor that i follow on instagram um she she does like aesthetic medicine skin doctor dr Waymon. um i'd recommend people checking out her igtv because she's just literally um, she went into depth about what you've just spoken about and she's like um you know that kind of attitude of oh it's fine the pain you know I'm in pain but it's okay um if if you don't stress the pain essentially you shouldn't have to do this if you don't stress the pain be your own advocate like just truly mm-hmm. say like this pain is unbearable I'm having to take days off work or I can't go to school you know um yeah. not every healthcare professional can pick that up you know there are different reasons why people pick up different things but Mm. you know um unfortunately it's up to us to say what the problem is and make it very clear very explicit because you know we are taught things like communication skills and to pick up on people's body language and, and stuff but the whole race thing as well can mix that up so someone might be really silent when you're giving them a whole bunch of um information and you're thinking, oh, they don't care, but they could just actually be thinking and internalizing things. So sometimes, you know, you literally just have to speak up. And I know the owner shouldn't be on the patient, but it is a, it is a partnership at the end of the day. So don't downplay whatever you're going through. Just find your voice, advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely agree. Um, it's important that you advocate for your own health. And I think as as a society we need to do better at realizing that we have to take ownership for our health take ownership when you're struggling 
if you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant and you're having symptoms and you feel like "Mm, something's wrong you know your body better than anyone else does um when someone comes to hospital they always say that especially when it's an obstin guy and i always remember people saying that moms know their bodies better than anyone else if a mom is complaining that something is wrong something is severely wrong so i'll give you guys an example from my own personal life so my mom um she she gave birth to me and my, my, my brother both in ghana but during her pregnancies so i am there's two of us but she had like you know a few like miscarriages and stillbirths and all of those things and one of her pregnancies that she went through she felt that something was wrong and she told her doctor like something is wrong I feel like something is wrong no one really listened to her they're like oh you're fine you're fine you're fine by the time they went to go see her and examine her the baby had no heartbeat and she was she was literally Mm. like full-term baby had no heartbeat she was full-term and ended up having to you know deliver a, a, a dead baby basically Whilst wow. if someone had listened to her concerns earlier on and be like, okay, let's let's listen to what she's saying, examined her and probably thought, let's take her straight to theatre and do an emergency cesarean, who would have known? Maybe that baby would have survived. Who would have known what would have happened? So just those things that actually mothers know what's wrong. They know what's wrong better than you do as a clinician. You may have the diagnostic know-how. You may have the skill set to be able to, you know, be like, okay, this person's got pre or this person's got... um. I don't know, placenta previa or whatever, shoulder distortion, whatever's going on, you're able to, you know, recognize, diagnose and know what the management plan is. But you're not the one who's going through it. You need to like, we as we as clinicians need to really listen to our patients and not dismiss dismiss what they say. So there's a quote actually, um, when I was doing my reading from a Dr. Anna Langer, she's the director of Women and Health Initiative at Harvard. Um, T.H. Chan School of Public Health in Boston and she said this quote she said basically black women are undervalued they are not monitored as carefully as white women when they do present the symptoms they are often dismissed and actually that is pretty on it's on the ball a lot of the times when black women do present with issues people don't really listen to what they're saying people you know dismiss it like oh you'll be fine you'll be okay don't worry you know if this 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 happens, come back again. And by the time they come back again, who knows? The, they might have lost the baby, or worse, they might baby might have had complications. The mother might have complications and end up dying as a result. So, if you're going through something as a female and you feel like actually I need, I I feel like something is wrong here. Speak up, speak up, and keep on speaking up. Keep on pressing on. Keep on pressing on to someone eventually listens to you and does something about it definitely definitely agree with everything you've said and if you feel like you've been speaking up and you're being ignored or you're being a nuisance at the end of the day you're not like it's your life is it's your baby so um yeah don't don't ever internalize that you're being a nuisance it's your right to kind of share what is going on with you and for us as healthcare professionals to listen and to partner um, something I remember from Obs and Gyne, one of the midwives that teaches us, she's just like um, how there are some people who say um, when it gets to a certain point of the pregnancy, you know, if the mum doesn't feel the baby move as much, there's actually been a lot of people who say, oh, that's normal for this part of the pregnancy, but it's actually not. And it's things like that when people are like, oh, you know, baby's not moving as much as usual. Don't dismiss that because, you know, like, like with your mum, early intervention could have prevented that outcome, essentially. So I don't know, this is a whole lot of, you know, sexism and racism on top intertwined into this because um, 
I just feel like it's very diff- different when it comes to women and their bodies. Now to add the race element on top, it's just a whole nother thing, but I'm, I'm going to just leave it at that. I agree. It's, it's, I think the issue, I just find it interesting because a lot of, me, there's a lot of men in Obs and Gainey and as much as they make, they make really good doctors, you know, sometimes I don't fully understand what a woman feels because you're going to have the, the book knowledge, but to actually be, to actually go through it, like, for a male doctor to be like, oh, your period pain is fine, it's normal, but actually he's never had period pain, he doesn't actually understand what you're talking about and understand the severity of your pain. So there's so, so much, there's so much. Um, I'm trying to find something that I recently read and it was really interesting. It was a, a study that was done in America and it showed the, it showed um, neonatal mortality was halved in black babies when they were treated by um, black clinicians yeah. So I thought I thought that was quite interesting actually. Um it just makes me think about something I read. So there was a paper called um stereotype threat amongst black and white women in healthcare setting. And what they mentioned is they kind of looked at the attitudes of why there's just so many disparities in healthcare in general, not just um ONG. And one of the things they said was um white doctors didn't really have an a f- not affinity like an affiliation with other patients who did not look like them and that's why representation matters when you see someone like yourself in a position looking after mm. you you know they, they they can pick up on cultural things that not by it's not like their fault but that maybe a doctor of another ethnicity won't be able to pick up on they will understand kind of your yeah. background your practices why your health practice or lifestyle is the way it is they're more likely to listen to your concerns and understand why you have those concerns and I believe that's what's contributing to why the mortality rate between a white doctor looking after a black woman and a black a black doctor looking after a black black woman wow tongue twister um is half <laughs> essentially um yeah. yeah it's just important to to see yourself um you know even as for me I'm still a student as a student when I see a black female doctor like it just encourages me that yeah I can do it and mm-hmm. I think it mm-hmm. means so much more to patients even yeah, I agree. Actually, I remember my first ever time seeing a black doctor in clinical pl- clinical practice um clinical placement. Sorry, in medical school, I was like, oh wow, like amazing, and she was bossing it as well. She was absolutely bossing it. Like she knew her stuff. So I was like, this is amazing to see um to see see, see some of a similar background for my, for myself. Also, in addition to what you said about um, if someone's like from a from a similar background to you they understand you better is actually true so I know there's um in certain cultures especially within um within Af- certain African cultures there's a belief that cesarean section isn't something that women should undergo um there's some some groups really? who are strongly ag- yeah there's some groups who are strongly against cesarean section um and they believe women should just have normal vaginal delivery but actually in certain situations it's not safe for women to have a vaginal delivery a cesarean section is the best thing for both mom and baby um mm. so again do you know what i mean like if you have a, a mother who's coming in uh, adamant they don't want a cesarean section but it's it's obviously an emergency and it needs to be done in order to save mom and baby's life then if you have some understanding that actually this patient like they're not being a difficult patient maybe they have actual you know they have actual reasons as to why this is you can quickly try and have a conversation with them and get to the bottom and the root cause of why they're ha- they're adamant against having cesarean section. There's so many layers and so many different factors that 
intertwine with the statistics it's great to have stats and that's why i love i love reading stuff like the embrace report i love reading reports i've said this in previous episodes i'm that kind of gal that will sit there and scroll through a report and read from like oh this is very interesting and nitpick things but as great as these reports are they don't actually tell you the causes they don't actually tell you the recommendations which always makes me a bit sad because i'm like oh great they're telling me facts they're telling me that you know black women are 4.35 times more likely to die compared to white counterparts but then you're not telling me what you're going to do about it you're not telling me what recommendations you're not telling me what potential factors are contributing to it or all these various things so yeah it's that frustration of um yeah okay this is this is common knowledge what what else are you bringing to the table yeah what next that that covid report that they released last year yeah that people are dying from covid people from certain groups are dying from covid but and so what like you told me the stats and so what we're going to do about it Mm. what's the actual plan we're asking too much (laughs) no i said no government's landed this year moving on (laughs) (laughs) yeah so um i do i think i read somewhere that the nhs is looking into the factors that contribute towards this um high maternal mortality within a specific group of people but i just hope and pray that something happens because obviously looking at statistics from 2016 to 2018 and statistics from 2013 to 2015 is actually the maternal the the rates actually gone up slightly so nothing actually has been done to reduce it so let's hope the next report that comes out will have something more promising. Definitely. So we wanted to actually recommend a resource. So this is a grassroots organisation. Um, they're called Five Times More. So five, F-I-V-E, yeah, F-I-V-E, X more. And they're basically committed to changing maternal outcomes and the disparities between black women and white women in pregnancy and for women who are pregnant or you know considering become pregnant they have a resource called the six steps so I've recommended you check that check that out on their website but the six steps are essentially number one speak up like we've already said if you don't think something is right speak to someone don't stay silent number two like we've already said find yourself an advocate you know you're a patient at the end of the day and you're not always going to be able to speak for yourself if you're in a lot of pain so to find someone to advocate for you um a birthing partner and just find someone who can speak your needs on your behalf second opinion you know it's everyone's right just on my s just on my sjt and every patient is entitled to seek a second opinion it doesn't mean that you're challenging the doctor it's just you're right um number four trust your gut again like we've mentioned if you feel like something's not right with yourself or with the baby, trust your gut, go to hospital, find help. Number five, do your research. So they've recommended websites, which we use actually to study. So nice kind of the guidelines there and patient.info and nhs.uk. And this one I think is very important. Um, document, document everything. Essentially, I know people have come in on the NHS, you can't really demand treatment. But if you know something's like within the guidelines, like I've got this, but they're not treating me with that. You can ask someone to actually document that in your notes, like document that they've refused to give you this treatment, which is within the guidelines and the reasons why. And when people actually say that, I've heard anecdotally that a lot of people just end up getting what they've asked for anyway. So, yeah. I'd recommend going to that website. And there's also one for healthcare professionals. 
So yes, they did the Drake campaign with the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and it's called the five steps for healthcare professionals. So number one is listen. So if a pregnant woman expresses concerns, feels like something is not quite right or is in pain, take time to listen to her concerns. That was something that we mentioned that if someone says something is not right, you know, as a healthcare professional, listen to them without making any assumptions or presumptions. Just go in there, listen to what they say, try to address any anxieties and or any concerns that they may have and if they're in pain you know try and figure out what's what's causing the pain and how can that be um how can that be resolved number two is remove any barriers to communication so for some women this may be language barriers they may not have a a great grasp of the english language so you could i know in several hospitals i work they have like language lines which you can use to you can call up and tell them what language your patient speaks and they can act as a sort of a third party and communicate um, medical medical jargon to the patient in, in a way that they understand. Um, number three is check your providing clear information. So sometimes as clinicians, I feel like we have this. Um, we forget that not our patient our patients don't always understand what we mean. And sometimes medical language to us sounds simple, but in fact, to someone who has no medical background, they don't have a clue what you're on about. So for when you're telling a patient something, make sure that you're asking their op- you explain the options to them, you made the recommendations clear, and you always ask them to recap, um, see whether or not they've understood what you've said. Number four is provide access to detailed documentation. So like Moya said, for for sort of women who are going to see their doctors or access healthcare you ask them to document stuff or you get stuff in writing but also as a clinician you're meant to ensure that you're giving this patient's documentation so you can give them printed leaflets from the NHS website printed leaflets from um, patient.co.uk and let them be aware of or um, aware of what information is out there that they can go and read in their own time in addition to what you've already told them. And the last one, number five, is be a champion. So support research and innovation in your hospital or in your workplace to help end disparity in maternal outcomes um, and also inspire others to champion positive changes in maternity or obstetric units. These issues are something that one person should take on their own. It's something that we as a society and we as healthcare clinicians need to be doing to ensure that we can reduce the sort of racial disparity between women who were women who were of colour, especially black women, um, and ensure that they're not suffering or dying or having to go through these horrible um, experiences. Perfect. Definitely food for thought. Um, those were a lot of recommendations. Again, it's five times more if you want to do some further reading. And um, yeah, just listen essentially um I guess I was reading and one woman I'm assuming she was a white doctor and with the whole um BLM conversation um she started thinking okay I've dismissed this from this patient and she'd stop check herself and be like why and I think that's something really good something really simple to check you know what is actually your reason Mm -hmm. for dismissing whatever they are saying you know so yeah that's something I'm Mm -hmm. gonna well I hope I wouldn't dismiss but I know as you the further along you go along your career there's just some things some bad habits you pick yeah. up but you know no one's too old to change so yeah I I agree I think as you get as you progress in your career you become a bit more cynical with patients you're like mm, 
this one here is not it's not that deep it's not that deep when in fact it might be a bit deep I mean, like, that's not really serious they're not in that much pain they look fine then when actually there could be in a lot of pain you've just got a high pain threshold so yeah i think it's super important that you listen to your patients at the end of the day it's their body and they're the experts of their own body um they have certain knowledge that we may not have in regards to what they're going through um so yeah i think my main point from this whole entire episode is just to listen to women and not to take your sort of preconceived ideas and unconscious biases into consultations um and if you're a woman who's black or an ethnic minority and you're going to go see a doctor or a midwife when you're if, if you're pregnant or even if you just got any health problems make sure that you're going there and you're really advocating for yourself um you can read around whatever issues you may be having and throw up some questions i've got this pain i think it might be this or i've got this symptom and i read it i read up on google and i think it might be this and at least then you can have a conversation um and they can be like oh, okay so it's not this because of x y reason or it might be this or actually you're right yeah you're reading you're you're reading around heavy periods and okay your skin it might be fibroids you can do some further investigations you know what i mean like yet it allows conversations to flow and allows conversations to start and sometimes it may even click um it may start stir something in your clinician's head that actually hmm this patient might be having this so yeah thank you for listening to this week's episode now it's time for this week's podcast. History. Temi is 11 months old. She was born at 37 plus 3 weeks by spontaneous vaginal delivery and there were no birth complications. She's been growing well, is bottle fed and has achieved all her expected milestones. Her past medical history includes a club foot at 2 months and this was corrected by the Ponsetti method. There is nothing to note in her drug history and no allergies. She lives at home with her parents and her older brother. So far, she's up to date with her childhood vaccinations and her parents have booked an appointment for the next set of vaccinations in one month's time. Are you able to answer the following questions? 1. When Temi turns 1, what vaccines will she be due? 2. Which of these vaccines protects against the organisms which cause meningitis? Finally, the UK immunisation programme contained an array of vaccine types. Give an example of an attenuated vaccine, an inactivated vaccine, a conjugate vaccine and a toxoid vaccine. Keep your eyes peeled on our social media. Or listen to the next episode and the answers will be revealed in full. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this recent episode. Remember to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Leave a like and comment. Follow us on our socials at SimplyMedics on Instagram and Twitter. Or drop us an email, simplymedics at gmail.com. Enjoy the rest of your week and thanks again for listening.